and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. Before we get to today's guest, I just want to let you know how you might be able to help us out at the podcast. First, thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing these conversations for those of you that share on social media or share with friends. Uh, I love walking around my community right outside Washington, D.C. in Bethesda, Maryland, and having people stop me and just ask me, hey, who's the next guest that you're having on? Or I enjoyed this conversation. So thank you all for your support. It means the world to me. And I am a big believer in relationships. And I really, really value everyone who listens to this show. So thanks for the continued support. And and hopefully you are finding these conversations to be useful in your life. If you enjoy these podcasts, you can go over to patreon.com slash intentional performers, and you can subscribe to the show by giving as little as $2 a month and as much as $10 a month. It really does help us as we continue to build out the podcast. Thank you all. Now to today's guest. Cordy Walker is somebody who I follow on Twitter and I reached out to him and said, Hey, I like your content. I like what you're producing. And I'm somebody who is a struggling amateur golfer who really wants to find out your knowledge, your information and and learn from you. So I had him on the podcast and I know you're going to love this conversation as Cordy talks about his journey, his story, and also what he's learned about how to grow and learn as a golfer. He's going to share how golf is changing and how it's turning into somewhat of a team sport and how people are learning how to uh, learning the value of groups and how groups can help cultivate skill. So Cordy is somebody who is extremely curious about how to make the best golfers possible, what makes golfers good, and how do we change the and shift the way that we're teaching golf in our society. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Cordy. He is a podcast producer. He has a podcast. He's a podcast expert. And he's also an entrepreneur and Cordy's going to share some of his failures and some of his journeys with being an entrepreneur and how he is constantly innovating and working on new projects and new things and how that is part of his being. So I appreciated this conversation with Cordy and without further ado, I present to you Cordy Walker. Cordy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast 
uh, really excited to have you on here and, and, and to learn from you, uh, to learn from your golf experience, to learn from your podcasting and entrepreneurial experience. Those are things that are definitely intersected with my life uh, in, in some degree and in some uh, way. So I know a lot of people that are listening to this are, are golfers, and uh, we're certainly going to dive in there and hopefully help some people out learning about everything that you've learned. So I wanted to start there and, and just find out, like, why golf? Where did that start for you? Talk about your journey with uh, this game that involves a little ball and, and a stick. Yeah. So my story of getting to where I am today is, is kind of interesting and random and, and strange, to be honest with you. So I, I grew up playing golf uh, all throughout my junior days, played competitively and really enjoyed it. Um, I, I didn't necessarily, you know, looking back and reflecting on it, think I had the best opportunity or learning environment to reach my potential or I don't like that word, but uh, to get to where I thought I could be. And so, you know, looking back is like, I kind of had that regret. I'm like, oh, I, you know, if only I had, you know, potentially better coaching or I had more opportunity to you know, be on the course or, um, you know, more opportunities to, to play competitively and, and that kind of thing. And so there's that in the back of my mind. And I went to college and started working and I was doing some freelance work uh, with some web design and online stuff and doing some marketing with companies and stuff like that out of college. And along the way, I decided, hey, you know what would be awesome is starting a software company. That would be great. Um, I should do that. So uh, this was in 2012. Um, I decided to start a software startup in the golf instruction space because I was like, We'll get back into golf, hang out with some golf instructors. It'll be fun. So started a scheduling and student management platform. So the idea was to have this mobile way that instructors could interact with their students that was more seamless and simple and easy, and they could better follow up with them and stay in touch and communicate. Uh, I, it's a great mission, um, and I'm, I still think it's a, a great idea. I bootstrapped that with my own money, and over the 18 months, worked with a team of developers, um, really worked hard at it, and 25 or $30,000 later, realized that I needed another 18 months and another even more money to get it to where I wanted it to be. And I was, I was burnt out at that point. Um, it was just a struggle. And um, throughout the time, though, I had started a, a podcast because I wanted to get involved with the community and like meet people and share and hear what people were doing, like some of the best instructors. So other instructors could hear what was going on in the industry because there is this kind of, uh, there is this movement happening in Facebook groups and online among golf instructors to talk about what they're doing, but no one was doing it in a long form setting. So I was like, great. Hey, what, what, year, yeah. what year did you launch your podcast? Uh, that would probably have been 2012 or 13, I think. So um, relatively early in the podcasting space, it's uh, yeah. what drew you to podcasting as opposed to like YouTube uh, or a different platform? So I'd grown up with like audio recording gear around all the time. I'd played music and enjoyed recording and messing around with that stuff. So I was very familiar with the media and had experience. I had mics laying around and I had recording equipment and pro tools and all this stuff. It was just, it was around. So it was very easy. What music did you play? Um, just kind of, just kind of everything growing up. I played pretty much every instrument and um, just enjoyed messing around and recording bits and bobs and stuff like that. Would you, would you say that music and golf were your two main passions, or was there something yeah. else that we're missing as well? No, that was it. That was it. Growing up, those are the things that I did and did pretty much all the time. 
and who introduced you to to music and and to golf um that's a good question neither my my dad and dad didn't pick up golf till later in life and and um neither my parents played music so uh you know it's just one of those things where i think they just kind of sent me off to go do something and i just kind of figured it out um on along the way you know starting piano lessons in kindergarten and um you know probably golf around the same time so just kind of going there and then trying to figure it out similarities differences between your experience with music and golf if you could just unpack that for me that'd be similarities or differences um i mean both were both are pretty similar i spent a lot of time with in with each of those growing up it's kind of what i enjoyed what i enjoyed doing um there's the there's the doorbell (laughs) Um, um no so you know i i enjoyed both of those growing up and um that was kind of, that was kind of what I did all the time. I, similarities and differences. I, I mean, I, I would say that they're both pretty similar, you know, um, we have long winters in Minnesota where I grew up. And so I, you know, do music, uh, during the, during the evenings, uh, and whatnot, cause it's dark and cold and there's three feet of snow on the ground. And then during the summer, you know, you'd be outside all, all summer trying to, trying to be outside as much as possible. So I guess, I mean, that was just kind of, the environment of where I grew up is we had these long winters. So there's something to do during the winter. And then, you know, we had these summers so there's something to do during the summer. Did you play any team sports growing up? Uh, yeah. You know, I played in the normal kind of sports of basketball and baseball and, um, growing up as well. And, um, you know, I think it was probably around seventh or eighth grade when I stopped playing those and just played golf. The reason I'm curious about music and, and golf is A, they're both performances. Mm-hmm. Um, B, they're both very mechanical and take a lot of work um, in isolation. And so, uh, well, so, golf- I, so I was an only child. That was, ah. that was why. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you're, you're comfortable being in isolation. You're comfortable being alone and, and, and working on a craft. Yep. Yep. That's, I, that was pretty much my childhood because I, didn't have any uh, siblings or, you know, anything like that really. And what didn't you like about music or about golf? And, you know, why not go toward the music? Why not do a software company for music? Maybe what was, what drew you to golf more than music? Great question. I don't know. I, I mean, I, there's no, I, I have no answer to that. Um, it was just kind of what I, what I went down, um, the path that I went down. I, that's interesting. I don't know. Well, hopefully I'll ask some questions that you never thought of and, and we'll try to bring some new answers out of you. But there you said go. something right off the bat that, that caught my ears. I actually am deaf in my left ear, so it caught my ear <laughs> and it caught my right ear. Uh, the left ear, it didn't really land. Um, but you talked about potential and you said, I hate that word. And then you used the word again uh, as you were talking. So I'm just curious, why did you have this aversion to that word potential and what do you, what do you hate about it? Um, you know, I, I, that's an, a word now that I don't necessarily like using just cause I think, um, I don't know what our potential is, but I think we can always get a little bit better every day. Um, but I, I think shooting for some far off potential leaves this constant gap between where we are right now and then where we think we can be, whether we can be there or not. And so there's some tension there and there's some stress that's created by that gap. You know, some people talk about like the goal setting gap between if you set these really big goals and then you're, you're never there. So you have this big gap. And, um, you know, I think the biggest thing in my life and, and what I've, what I've 
people have shared with me is if we can lower the tension, that's always going to improve our, our lives and we can lower the stress. That's always going to get better. So instead of shooting for this potential or whatnot, I just like, let's just get a little bit better every day. Um, cause that's way easier and I can handle that when I wake up tomorrow morning versus having this big potential to live up to. Yeah. It's so interesting. You've got, you mentioned goal setting. I think there are people that would say, don't set any goals, like just focus on getting better. And you've got other people that say, no, you have to have a vision, right? And you have to know where you're going. And I actually think everybody's right. And I think you need to figure out what is right for you to help you get to where you want to go or get better. And um, I, the word potential for me, it's interesting. When I hear it, I don't think about an outcome. Um, I actually think about a beginning. And I think about, you know, we all have some potential inside of us. And, uh, you know, could I have become a pianist? Maybe. But my dabbling with some instruments early on probably suggested that I, I probably should go in a different direction. Now, that's not to say that I could have become pretty good. Um, but the feedback loop I was getting was like, hey, Brian, maybe shift in a different direction. Um, or let's use basketball as an example, because that's more tangible for people. You know, I, I loved basketball growing up but I was the smallest kid in my grade. I was scrawny and I wasn't an amazing athlete that could overcome that. And so my potential um, that I had, whether I think about that as my talent or, or what it might've been, I think was limited. So it's an, it's such an interesting word because I definitely hear what you're saying. And I hear what people are saying when they're like, don't worry about goals. Like don't set goals. Cause you don't know, you don't know where you're going. And I hear the other side of like, no, I have a vision and I know I've got some talent and I'm going to do a plus B to get to C. Um, you have any thoughts on that? Cause I just went on a little bit of a, no, no, I, I think it's, I think it's right on. And I think the answer is really um, is an answer that we don't want to hear that there's no specific plan or there's no specific uh, one, two, three to follow these steps to achieve your dreams. Um, and, and the reality is that what works for me might not work for you and what works for someone else is not going to work for me. And so it's that, that paradigm of that success is not a straight line, one, two, three, follow these steps. Uh, and that, you know, that having that big vision and that goal that someone, you know, puts on a board and looks at every day is going to work for somebody, but it's not going to work for somebody else. And that reality is really difficult because we all want, give me that stupid checklist so I can just do this and get that result that I want. Right. Cause that's what we're growing up. That's what we do growing up in school is you do that this way and then you're going to get the grade and then it's going to be great. But then you get into this of whatever it is, whatever skill or whatever your path you're going down. And it's like, no, it doesn't it doesn't equal that. You know, if you do all the right things, you still might get screwed at the end of the day and you might not get to where you want to go. And it's it's not that simple. And and the problem is that we want it to be. That's our human nature. Yeah, I love the other word that starts with a P, which is possibilities, um, because we don't know the different possibilities. So if we unlock possibility, um, we'll see where it takes us. Um, but yeah, I, th I find both of those words, when I think about my mission, it's to help others unlock their possibilities or potential and enjoy success. Um, so for me, joy is an important piece to the, to the ride. And I think uh, joy get, takes a back burner for a lot of athletes specifically um, who are in isolation and working on their craft. Um, but, but joy, I think, is a process. It's not a destination. So, um, but I love that you brought up potential because I think it's an interesting word to dive into. I want to go back to your story. And so you, start, you, you fire up this podcast. You've got this software company. Um, what comes next for you? Um, as you're, as you're walking down, uh, that road. 
Yeah. So uh, that was a podcast just for golf. It was like an industry podcast, right? Like as a business kind of industry podcast for golf instructors. Um, while I was doing that, I shut down the software thing, but I kept doing that because I was getting good feedback from folks in the industry and was working with a few different partners and companies and stuff. Um, and then along the way, saw that, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on here, which is not being talked about in mainstream media. Um, and the idea of we're not talking that much about learning or practice what's going on in the academic world. There's great research going on uh, in sport and coaching, and we're not really talking about it. So uh, I started this thing called the Golf Science Lab, which is an, an attempt to change the way or look at the way that we teach and we learn golf. And, um, you know, this is applicable to everybody. And, and I really enjoy this mission and this content because it not only is relevant for golf, but it's also relevant for life because a lot of these things that we talk about and how we learn and how we perform at our best are very translatable to any area of, of what you're doing. So, you know, now the mission, uh, with, with the golf science lab is, is we just create a bunch of content and products around helping people understand the way that they're going to learn and perform at their best and kind of re-examining the common best practices or things that you would have heard that maybe aren't true. There's an amazing aspect of being a PGA tour teacher, right? Uh, sorry, PGA mm -hmm. licensed professional or whatever they call it. What do they call them? PGA? Yeah, just uh, some, some instructors uh, join the PGA and they go through that program and then they're, they're instructors. Some don't. A lot of the ones that I have are P I've worked with are PGA pro mm -hmm. uh, teachers. Mm -hmm. And there is this amazing thing in golf where they are often swing coaches, right? Like they mm -hmm. are working on people's swings. Um, but you know, having done this journey, there's so much that goes into what makes a great golfer. And on the flip side of that, let's take a sport like basketball. Uh, a basketball coach um, is often you know, not necessarily working on someone's form shooting or their mechanics. They're more working on how do they get the team to execute as a team or as a unit or draw up plays. And that's not to say a basketball coach won't get into form shooting and a swing coach won't get on into course management. Um, but I've always been fascinated that they're both really the coaches. So what have you found as far as some of the best instructors in the world and their approach in the golf space and, and how they approach working with their clients? Well, the shift is happening. The shift in golf is happening where it's going away from being so swing focused and towards being more of a performance coach and being more concerned about all areas of someone game, someone's game. And that means that the way that you view golf instruction is changing. So instead of a half hour, one hour lesson, there's a change toward more group coaching, meaning that you're going to show up with three, five people. Your coach is going to create a learning environment for you where you're going to compete. You're going to play games and you're going to work on your skills versus just working on your technique. And so there is a shift happening very slowly in the golf industry towards more of that because people are realizing if, you know, if you want to get people to drastically improve their performance, a lot of it's going to happen by improving their skills instead of their technique. And the reality is most people don't understand what a good learning environment is. They don't understand how they actually get better. And so a coach needs to put them in that environment and get them to work on what they need to work on versus what the player wants to work on. Um, there's a great coach, uh, Will Robbins in, in Sacramento, California, um, who's done a lot of this work and really pushed the industry forward 
with this concept. And it's been great to see his, his growth. And as he shares this, shares what he's seen with this, but um, I think that shift is happening uh, at, at the, at a ground level of, um, you know, of recreational golfers. It's also happening with, uh, you know, the development of tour players. There's an emphasis a way more so uh, from just the swing technique to more of a community approach of, uh, you know, how do you get all these guys in isolation, like we've talked about, working on their craft, create a team of players, you know, there's a, a coach, um, and really get them working together, caring about each other. Uh, Tony Ruggiero is a great example of this. Um, it just was down last week. We were recording some podcasts with some of his tour players. And, you know, as we sat around the the table in his backyard, and we were having this conversation with, with these players, it was it was more so about like, creating a community where these players cared, you know, they care about each other's results and they, you know, encourage each other, even though it's a, they don't really care at the end of the day because it's not a team sport, but like they, they do have this sense of community and it's, it's helpful. And it's not just where he's showing up on a, you know, in the range and saying, Hey, you know, change your grip here. It's not like that at all. It's way more holistic. And so that is changing. Um, and that, is going to even become more relevant as this word coach becomes more used in the golf world. Um, and this approach becomes more and more, um, relevant. It's interesting. I did a talk at a, uh, college, a music college, and this is going to come back to you. And, uh, it was like 300 of their students an, an elite prestigious music, uh, institution. And, Afterwards, they gave me a tour of the facility and they showed me these small little rooms with uh, p- pianos. Some had a piano in it. Others would just be like almost like a small cubicle where they would practice. And while we were doing the tour, there was a young woman practicing over and over and over again. And she, the woman who was giving me the tour looked at me and said, so now you see why we have a lot of depression and a lot of like massive issues like these kids mm. come it's it's dark it's gray and they're literally just in there over and over again mastering their craft and i think about musicians and their ability to connect with an audience and that is part of the performance um anyone that's ever been to a concert knows that it's not just hearing it it's feeling it mm. and what can happen in the energy of that audience and how that can spring forward or a band versus an individual and the different dynamics that can happen there. And I was thinking about that as you were talking about the golfer who's just over and over on the range hitting the same shot and getting that swing perfectly. And I'm even thinking about a lot of the Asian cultures where, um, you know, they have some great golfers where they are just, you know, over and over again and their swing mechanics are perfect but you take that on the golf course and now you're in some kind of different situation uh, a slope uh, a w- some kind of weather some kind of environment whatever and it's different and so as you're talking I was thinking like man I've always wondered if golfers could create a team dynamic and mm-hmm. you see it with the Ryder Cup is the obvious mm-hmm. one but tennis now like which is a similar type of sport to golf they have a pro uh, team tennis league and you you go to the arena and you see these they're they're really cheering for each other and they're playing for something bigger than themselves and it's it's different and i i think there's probably space for both right there's space and you have to do the mechanics not have to but you probably should get the mechanics to be as perfect as possible and cultivate the mindset or um the framework needed so that when you're actually performing 
you can bring out the best version of yourself. Yeah. So there's this, there's this great paper called uh, PAR, P-A-R, that uh, was done by a couple of researchers, Dr. Tim Lee and Dr. Mark Guadagnoli. And uh, the concept was that golf is a, a planning and acting and a review activity. So PAR. Um, and that that is what it is. It's a problem solving activity is, is what golf is. So your ability to solve a problem stems from your ability to go through all three of those stages, not just the acting stage. You have to be able to plan and you have to be able to review as well. So if, if you're going to learn that, I need to be able to adapt and change to the variability that I'm going to see during a tournament, which is the pressure, which is the change of environment of the lies on the course, whatever it might be. Right. And, you know, if I do not prepare myself for that, I'm not going to be able to perform well because I don't know how to plan and I don't know how to act. and I don't know how to review under all these variable conditions. So we need to create that in, in our learning environment. And far too often we, we miss that entire loop and we just go for one phase of it and we, for, we miss the planning and we miss the review uh, and we just work on uh, a technique when that is a, a small portion of what performance is as a whole. So cool. So I have this framework that I've worked with and a lot of it has stemmed from working with golfers because golfers call me more than anybody. Uh, that's a conversation for another day. But um, so I believe that there are actually three components. There's the preparation, which preparation is actually about trying to be perfect. Preparation is about fearing failure. Preparation is about, you know, having some, some nerves and, and really putting yourself in uncomfortable situations. And um, there, there's a mindset that's for growth and for improvement that lives in preparation. On the flip side, performance mindset is more about arrogance, more about, you know, fearlessness. In golf, it's a little different because if you have that, you can take unnecessary risks. But golf's rare in that way. Most sports reward risk. Um, and golf can too, but there's also hazards that will hurt you for those risks. But at any rate, you know, having that self-belief and arrogance to believing that you're important and that you can do it, having the fearlessness to say, yeah, I'm, I know that I can commit to this shot. Um, and, and really trying to get yourself comfortable, right? Like with routine or habit or a caddy, like getting yourself into a comfortable space. So there's a dichotomy there. Um, and there are binaries between the preparation and performance mindset. And to me, what can bridge the preparation and performance is, is practice. And so I believe that practice should be somewhat that preparation mindset, which is all about being humble, you know, trying to be perfect, like really working on the craft to learn. And then the other part of practice should be about actually getting yourself into that performance mindset and saying, all right, I've got one putt here and I have to make this one putt or, you know, bringing out that arrogance, the inner arrogance that you need to believe that you can actually win a golf tournament when you're playing with against 70 other people. Like it's, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy for Tiger Woods to really believe that he could win that tournament at this point in his career. But he, he needed to cultivate that inner arrogance to actually say like, no, yeah, I'm, I can do it. Even though the data from the last whatever years says, no, you can't, or the Ryder cup, like there's no data that suggests that they were going to beat the U S but they needed to have this sense of belief when they were performing. So this is like my main, main passion that I believe that we are, are doing it wrong um, because we are spending so much time in that preparation mindset, trying to perfect being humble, right? Having a swing coach or, a, or in other sports, a football coach, humble us and, you know, go over, over and over on the video over. And then we bring that preparation mind into the performance. And it's just not what we need when the lights are on.
We all need a little more discomfort. We all need to be a little more uncomfortable during our training. Um, there's a concept of specificity, which is you need your training environment to look more like your performance environment. So you can put yourself in those positions to know what it's going to be like and know that you've, you've accomplished that goal. And, and I, for golf, we talk a lot about score. There's a common concept of people say like, hey, don't think about score. Whatever you do, don't think about score. Good luck. I'm going to, you know, you, you follow that all the way to shooting a hundred um, <laughs> because you're going to think about score. Like it's, it's unavoidable unless you're in the zone or whatnot, which is like 3% of the time is going to happen. You're going to think about your score. Everyone does. Uh, the pros do it. Right. So instead of trying to resist that and trying to say, don't think about score, don't think about score, just train with score in mind, you know, and get used to it. That's the, that's the best way is we need to train more like, and have these conditions that we're going to see on the golf course, instead of just going out there and, you know, having no tasks or no score or anything when you're training, take the time to give yourself a task of I need to accomplish seven out of 10 of these particular things, or I need to shoot this score on the putting green when I'm putting so that you train yourself to, you know, be uncomfortable when you get close to that number that you're trying to hit and you fail. So then you got to do it again and then you accomplish it. And then you can say like, Hey, I, you know, I can do this, but I also might fail. Okay. All right. I understand how score, you know, get used to the score get used to these things that you're going to deal with. And you're bringing up results and score. And I want to go back to your story because you took a leap uh, to start your own business. You took a leap uh, to launch your own podcast. And a lot of people are paralyzed and, and aren't willing to take those leaps. What in you allowed you to, to go for it? Um, that's a good question. What in me allowed me to go for it? I don't know. I think it's just, just my nature. I've, I've always done my own thing, whether it's that I <laughs> grew up kind of, I guess, a bit isolated, you know, working on these different crafts, whatever they might be. And that's just translated right through, I guess, of just like feeling comfortable, just like, all right, we'll, you know, take a stab at this and we'll, and we'll go for it. Um, and I've always been willing to jump. I mean, I'm constantly taking on new projects and risks all the time. I think it's just part of who I am at this point is I'm, I, I constantly need to be a little bit uncomfortable in, in just my life and my work as well as, I mean, I, I think that's where it translates is that too many of us in our, in our work and in our crafts get comfortable and we stay in the same place doing the same thing over and over again, where if you put your place, yourself in a place of discomfort, that's when you can, that's when you can really see some growth and you can really see what what your strengths are what your weaknesses are and what you need to focus in on and so I, I try to put myself in a position of discomfort um pretty much all the time it's kind of my nature now is I just enjoy like I work way too much and it's just one of those things if I have too many projects going because I'm always trying to push the envelope and try new things and learn and do and do that and that's something that I'm struggling with is trying to figure out the balance of that because I enjoy that process so much but um I think it's just part of my, my nature at this point. What's the downside of taking that approach? Well, I mean, I, taking on too many projects, I, I think would be th something and spreading yourself too thin that creates a lot of stress and tension because you're trying to balance all these things. And uh, this is a constant, this is a constant discussion in my mind is the idea of I have focus. Uh, you see books like the one thing or essentialism versus, uh, you know, trying a few things and having a bit of diversity. Um, have about three or four main projects going in three different industries. And so 
I, I have a lot of things on my plate, have different team members and different things, different things to go check in on, to track, to, you know, go through this whole process for these different things. And so the, I, you know, I'd say there are definitely some cons because, um, you know, as, as one thing grows, you have to, you know, work with your team, get the systems in place, have a good reflection process. And you have to do that multiple times. And that's, that's difficult um, for sure. And it sounds like the software concept that you started off with failed. Is that, yep. would that be, yep. What, yep. what, what did you learn from that process? I mean, that was, that was fantastic. I, you know, I always say um, I was lucky enough to have my dad pay for my college, which was absolutely incredible. And then I, I always reflect on that kind of like that, that process was my college that I paid for. <laughs> and like, it was, it was just, it was perfect. Cause I had to figure out how to work with a team. Cause I had to work with developers. I had to figure out how to reach out to people, just no intro, no nothing and try to start and build relationships in an industry. Uh, I had to learn sales, uh, negotiating, working with other companies and partners. Um, I mean, just everything, you know, for me, that was like, I had come from an environment of being a freelancer, you know, just being kind of that hired hand to come in and work on projects and do things to trying to do everything. And so it was like, it was invaluable. I always look back on that as the best money that I've ever spent. You mentioned dad a couple of times. What values did dad pass down to you? What values did dad pass down to me? Um, I mean, this is interesting. I've told him this, uh, but he worked a corporate job his whole life and you know, just kind of middle, middle class American upbringing, fantastic, lived in the suburbs, that whole thing. But, you know, as I looked at that growing up, I was like, I'm never going to do that. Um, and it, that might sound really bad. I've told him this, so I'm fine sharing the story. But like, I, I looked at that and was like, you know, I, I, I can't do that. I got to do something else. I've got to, I got to go a different path. And I think that was the thing that, that he passed down was kind of that idea of I'm going to, I'm going to go out on something different. I'm not going to do that. That he sounds bad. <laughs> I don't, I don't think it does at all. I think, um, we our our parents are models for us and some model behavior that we want to go toward and some model behavior that we want to go away from. Uh, it's actually one of the things I've been always fascinated by is, and this isn't your situation, but take somebody who's dad was an alcoholic or their mom was an alcoholic and they'll say, well, I'm never going to touch that ever. It's just not an option. Um, and then you have others that, that follow that path and there's genetic components too. So I'm not going to say that I'm not judging or labeling people that follow that path, but it is a fascinating concept to me, which is when do we go toward uh, what, what's been modeled and when do we actually go away from it? I'm curious for you, is there a moment um, in your life where you remember thinking that and being like, man, I don't want to do that. I want to do X or Y or. I don't think there was a moment. It was just kind of, I guess, kind of just the, the I don't remember a specific moment. It's just kind of the whole, you know, just kind of my mindset, I guess, as I was as developing and growing and trying to figure out what I was going to do and what I wanted to do. Um, I think that would, it was just kind of that, that whole mindset that was developed as I was growing up. In, in me as I was trying to figure out, you know, what path to, to go down. And mom, mom around as well. Yeah. Yep. Um, I don't, I mean, nothing specific that I could point to there. How about values? Any values that she passed down to you? Values. Um, 
I don't think so. You know, I was, I was that pretty independent kind of just do my own thing, um, growing up and, um, yeah, I I don't know. No, I don't think there's anything there. No. Was she working or was she at home? No, she was, she was at home. Um, the, the whole time. Got it. Um, when did becoming like a content creative type person, because I know you blogged, you had a podcast, mm-hmm. you know, it's clear that you value content. Uh, when did that start for you? And, and where do you think that comes from? I came out of the need with the, you know, when I was doing the software to connect and communicate with an, with an audience and people and, and get to know an industry. And I saw, you know, the value and the results of doing that right there. And that was, um, I mean, it was super clear and apparent from, from that, the first start of that, that there was something really important there uh, and something really valuable there for folks. And as somebody who's still new to podcasting and, and producing content, regularly what advice would you give someone like me um so we've been at this now for almost two years uh we do one a week they're long form you're in it mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. and uh it's been a labor of love for me but i don't really know what the heck i'm doing i've i've worked with a producer who helped me get clear uh and asked me questions like some of the questions you were asking me right before we fired up and started recording um but for those that might be listening and are interested in maybe producing a podcast or writing a book or starting a blog, you know, they're interested in content creation. Uh, what advice would you give them having been doing this now for a decent amount of time? Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you have no audience when you start out, um, it, good luck, you know, you're going to spend probably five to 10 years <laughs> grinding away very slowly. Uh, I think that's, that's the biggest thing is that, you know, if you are thinking about starting something like, you know, I'd want to build an audience and so a podcast would be great. Well, it's going to take you a while. It's a slow organic growth. And that's just the reality of, of where it is right now. Um, if you're trying to build an audience to share a message, uh, unless you're spending a bunch on ads and you're doing a bunch of stuff that way. Um, you know, I think the biggest thing for people trying to build an audience to share a message would be to somewhat define the gap of, you know, what kind of shows aren't out there. Is it short form? Is it, um, you know, are they looking for something super tangible? Is it daily? Is it monthly? Is it super produced storytelling? Is it very topical? Is it more interview and find that gap? Um, I think too many people think of podcasting as uh, something of like we're doing right now, just an interview show. Now it can be literally anything. So experimenting with format, trying out different things and seeing what sticks and resonates. Uh, I think as the space is becoming more crowded. It has been for a while now. Your organic growth of relying on a podcast platform like Spotify or iTunes or Stitcher or whatnot, you're not going to get in the new and noteworthy and get a bunch of subscribers and do that. That's unfortunately not going to happen anymore. It did maybe three, four years ago. We could do that pretty successfully. Um, but that has changed now. So every listener that you're going to get is up to you, 100%. So what's your plan to get them there? And then once you get them on your podcast, why are they there? What are you trying to do? How are you helping them? What's your product? What's your service? How do you, you know, how do you win from this ultimately? So, you know, I think you have to kind of view this whole picture of where does the podcast fit into your business? And so, you know, I, so what the other business that I run is a a production studio. We work with um, universities, organizations, all types of people and producing podcasts to better communicate with their members, their customers, et cetera. 
and kind of the shift that, that I see happening and how we're using podcasts really effectively is more for organizations to better communicate with their people and to increase retention rates to get people seeing more value from their, from their company or their provider um, and more of an internal tool instead of an external tool for a company like that, because um, it's a really great way to consistently communicate with your people and provide more value. Can you give me an example of how a company uses it internally? Because I have always thought that in my head, but I've, I, I don't know how that's executed. Yeah. I've always wondered, I'm like, if I'm at Goldman Sachs uh, and I'm an intern, like how awesome would it be that every day on my, and I'm in New York City, like every day on my way to work, there is a Goldman Sachs intern podcast yeah. that I can listen to that can help prime me for the work that I'm going to be doing at Goldman. But I, that's like my mind comes up with ideas all the time. Most of them yeah. are not, are not great, but, um, so, so since this is already being done, um, tell me how a company uses it internally. Yeah. So for example, uh, we work with a couple industry organizations, but one, um, they have a, a weekly podcast. It's uh, in risk management. Uh, it's just an industry organization of folks all, all across the world. And they share specific topic or specific story about one element that they deal with in their jobs and how other people might run into that if they haven't already and how they might deal with that. Another example would be a university, uh, an alumni organization, organization inside a university is using podcasts to better help their alumni get ready for the workplace. Uh, another flip side, we've done series telling stories of alumni and help them prepare for that and also helping students. Um, with stories of alumni and how they have dealt with their the day after graduation. And so, I mean, they're really cool ways that, that folks are using podcasts um, to help their, to help their people internally instead of going external with it. Awesome. I, I, it makes complete sense to me. Um, and it's such a seamless, uh, the, the barrier for entry is, is really minimal. I actually started this as a YouTube channel and I don't know if most people even listening will know that. And I did like three or four interviews. One of them was actually with a, a great golf instructor and we went out and we recorded, uh, but I had to hire like a college student who had video equipment and we went out there and he videoed. And um, I realized that about five episodes and I'm like, this is not going to be sustainable for me, for, for me. Um, and it was around that same time where I started falling in love with other podcasts and I was like, man, that actually could probably work. And it's taken me a long road to figure out the equipment that I should use. And it's still a work in progress and how to do it. But um, it's, it's gotten better, which is weird to talk about as people are listening to this podcast. But hopefully they're finding this useful. You mentioned that you have three or four things going on. So we've got podcasting. Uh, we've got producing. Um, what, talk about the other stuff that, that you're doing these days. Yeah, so we have just hit publish. Um, we're a, a small boutique agency. We have a, a small team and we produce podcasts for organizations and companies looking to better communicate with um, with their folks. Um, we have the Golf Science Lab uh, and then I, a few other projects inside of golf. Uh, and then uh, that's been what I've done the past uh, probably four years. And then uh, recently, this is uh, out of left field, but we moved back into in, into uh, the place where we grew up. We had traveled full-time for a while and, and lived a few places and moved back. And one of my buddies uh, is in real estate. So we started a flooring company of all things. So now we have a, uh, my background in marketing and kind of just project management and that stuff. We have a, we have a store and 
staff and a couple of crews and stuff like that. It's very random, but, um, something, something to, to keep myself busy with, uh, when I'm not busy, which I'm always busy. <laughs> <laughs> can you, can you talk about the drive for each of those funnels? Like what's motivating you to do each of the, the three funnels? Oh, what's motivating the drive? Um, so I'm passionate about people creating great content to build better relationships. That's what the the podcast production and our agency is all about: building better relationships and creating something that that matters for a group of people. And so, I mean, it's it's really fantastic. I, I love working with our, our clients, and and we have just a great team and produce great shows. I really enjoy that. The golf is, I feel like there's a need to change the way the golf's taught and learned. I believe that for um, years now and have really worked on that mission and I've seen the industry changing um, and maybe I've done just a drop of, of that, hopefully. Um, and then the third thing is just, uh, I enjoy working with people. It's something so I don't have to be isolated because <laughs> our, team is virtual and in our podcast uh we're all across the across the states and um something local work with some friends and, and have a good time and enjoy ourselves and um you know build something that matters here and you know an attempt to diversify as well off online i don't know if the internet explodes there's something that's not on the internet how is long that, is that good logic i don't know how, it's not for me to answer <laughs> i don't think the internet's gonna actually explode yeah. in the way that you're talking yeah. about but i yeah. it wouldn't be my expertise so i would be yeah. answering that without any uh knowledge to support my my thought the flooring company how long have you been at it and what have you learned along the way that's a great question we've been at it a year and a half um and what have uh, i learned well you've learned that that hiring is difficult right bringing on good people is, is always difficult. That's across every industry. Um, I, I think that's pretty universal. Uh, I've learned that, you know, we've seen the importance of systems uh, and documenting systems so that there's a, a something to follow. So that nothing gets missed. And we, um, we always have a good result every time you have a good product every time. And that's something that came from kind of the agency work and the podcast production is we have systems in that as well. And so that, I mean, those translate, a lot of these things are trans translate across everything. Great systems are super important. You got to have something for people to follow. Right. Um, and what else, what else have we learned? Relationships are relationships are key. Having a good vision or having a good vision and values for people to get behind written out very clear very well documented um i, I mean those so are a in, few things but in that way vision is different than potential for you uh, yeah in, in that way vision is like here's what we want every experience to be like for our for a customer that walks in the door god um, so it's really about the vision of the process and yeah. how how to operate there how yeah the the experience people have what's it like managing people what's it like managing people um Sometimes it's fun. Sometimes it's difficult. Um, I, you know, I think it runs the gamut of, of, uh, of things. I, I think the, the clearer systems, the clearer expectations you have, the easier it gets because there's no ambiguity. I think in, in, in ambiguity, there's always more difficulties. So that's why I think systems and processes and expectations and clear communication are so important because it's when someone has an expectation or you know that is not clear 
on either side, whether, you know, it's, you know, someone, an employee or um, the manager that things really are, get difficult. You, you mentioned earlier that your focus is always on, Hey, I'm just going to get a little bit better, get a little bit better, get a little bit better. And when I hear that, I hear maximizing, like, I'm just going to try to maximize, like, let's figure out how I can maximize myself. And I've heard you talk a lot about being busy. Um, So I'm curious for you, like, and I know this is getting into the future, but um, five, 10 years from now, do you still want to be focused on just getting better? And do you still want to be focused on maximizing um, and, and being busy? Or how do you see yourself in the future? Um, no, I don't see this as, as going on forever. You know, I say, you know, systems, instead of, instead of maximizing, I'd say it's almost for survival in the sense of if you don't have good systems, you're not going to have a good product. If you don't have a good product, people aren't going to keep coming back. And if you, they, you don't have people, you're um, alone sitting, uh, you know, behind a desk where nobody cares and you're not making any money. Right. So I, I almost see it. I almost see it as like a, a, a vital part of if we don't have a, a good system and a good process, then we're out of business um, because it's not sustainable on just one or two one or two people's backs. So I, you know, I see it as something of if, if this is not part of a service-based business, then you're out of business. Um, unless you want to stay a very, a one or two person shop where, you know, it's very like-minded or whatnot, which is great. But um, if you want to be able to grow and scale and have a consistent product, you need that. Um, that's, that's my view on that. Uh, and then, you know, being busy is a season in my life. I think I'm still young. Um, I have a young child and, um, so I can work a lot and am able to, to do that. But you no, know, and, and that, that, that's my personality as well. I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram at all. Um, but that's just my, I'm a three and that's, you know, it's my nature. And you know, sometimes I range from unhealthy to healthy and, uh, I'm always working on that and aware of that. And that's just something I gotta, I gotta work on. <laughs> it's funny that you brought up the Enneagram because the person that tried to turn me on to the Enneagram was my podcast producer. So maybe there's there something go. with podcast producers loving, <laughs> loving the Enneagram. Um, so I, I also want to just try to understand your podcast a little bit more. So mm-hmm. um, who has been a guest that you've had on that you've just been, you know, your mind's been blown by some of the information that they shared with you. And I would love for you to share that information uh, with, with our audience as well. Yeah. So my current obsession is uh, like, what does it take or how did you get good? So I'm starting these conversations with uh, pros and teachers. And the idea is, all right, here's if someone on the PGA tour, how, how did you actually get good? Right this is a question we don't ask. We'll look at the how did you swing. get good? How'd you get good? Or how'd you get great? Cause I think there's a distinction there. Um, I don't know. I've been asking how, or let me say, how did you develop skill? Okay. What did your, what did your development process look like? Like, how did you get to this level? Um, so for instance, I just took this trip. We had a couple conversations with, um, one, one player on the web.com tour. who was really close to getting his tour card last year. He'll lock it up this year. Uh, and then, uh, another guy who has his tour card um, had a really had 13 months where he didn't play golf. And so he is coming back now this next year, he has some medical starts uh, still left and just having these great conversations about 
you know, what, what did it take for you as, you know, when you're growing up, like, what did that look like for you? And a lot of what you hear is like, well, I had a great group of friends. We played golf like constantly. We competed like we were gambling all the time for money. And like, you hear these same stories over and over again. I've interviewed people in this younger generation and the older generation as well. And what's funny is the stories are so similar. You might think like, oh, you know, someone who's, you know, in his early twenties or mid twenties is like, yeah, I went to an academy. I worked with a swing coach every day. I hit a thousand balls a day. Um, but the stories are really common of like, well, my grand, my, you know, I had a grandpa, I had a, a dad who was, who loved golf. And so he was at the course all the time. So I just kind of went along with him and I started playing and I liked it. And so we just, I played all the time. I had a good group of friends. We competed a lot. You know, we were, we we're at the course playing. You don't hear so much the stories of like, yeah, I hit a thousand balls a day every day from seven to 18. Um, and I think it's fascinating how important the environment that we develop in and the environment that we perform in has over our success or lack of. And a lot of that isn't controllable as a junior, you know, as, as a junior trying to get good at golf, right? Like that environment is, is pretty fixed for a lot of people unless you have a parent that's going to change or has an understanding of the value of that. So I, you know, I'm fascinated by that conversation of how did, how did you become better than, than everyone else that was around you? I've often wondered, are the pro players more country club kids or more public sort of muni playing kids? I, I both, both. I, there's, you know, there's definitely kids that their dad was a member and he golfed like pretty much every night and, um, they were along with him and there's stories of like, yeah, there was the public course down the road and we went there every day all summer long, you know, we were there all day long because they had a cheap membership that my parents could afford. And like it was, you know, we just had access to the course, you know, all day long. And so we just spent time there with my group of friends and we played golf, you know, that's what we did all summer. That, so there's definitely stories of both. It's not a, you have to be a country club member to, to become good. It, it, golf is so fascinating because it is very mechanical and it is not a team sport. And um, you do make your own bed. And certainly as you're talking about your experience growing up, you know, you were limited as far as how often you could play. And it, I don't know the numbers, but it, it seems like whenever I look at where guys are from, there certainly is a heavy contingent from Texas, California, and Florida. And I don't think that's a, um, I, I think that's, there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, when you talk to golfers who played in the Northeast or, or played in, you know, weather in areas where the weather is not good, what are some of the comments or what are you, what are you hearing from them as far as how they were able to still be, really, really good and acquire the skill that you were talking about earlier? Well, I mean, most of most players are multi-sport athletes growing up as well. So there are other sports, there's basketball, there was, you know, f- football or whatever it was. So growing up, they had another sport that they played and golf wasn't everything. That's another common story is, is you'll hear that most people were multi-sport kind of people growing up. Um, so I, it wasn't so much a big deal. Uh, and, and I think the reason that you hear so much about Texas and Florida, Alabama is another state where there's just some ridiculous golf, Georgia, Carolinas, they're all really good is, is that not only do they have more time, but there are also more groups of really good golfers. So when you, when you're in that environment of, you know, maybe in a Minnesota here, we don't have as many elite level junior golfers, uh, and they're more spread out. So they're not playing, 
you know, with each other consistently. However, in the South where there are more elite junior golfers, they're nearby so they can play more together. They can compete more together. And so that level of that whole environment is just higher, which is going to push people. So I think that's a factor as well, but yeah. Well, then the third thing is coaching, right? So where are the coaches, if you're a really serious golf coach, you're probably going to want to go where there's more kids playing golf. Mm -hmm. um, and so those states that you're naming are going to also be attractive for a, a golf pro. I, I know I'm outside Washington, DC, you're, you're in Minneapolis. Um, you know, our golf instructors, a lot of them go down to Florida for half the year uh, so they can make a living. And so if you don't have to go back and forth and you can ground yourself in one place, that's probably more ideal uh, for a lot of golf instructors. And that's not to say, like I, I work with some amazing golf instructors inside Washington, D.C., um, but the, uh, it, it's, it's definitely harder. Well, it's big fish, small pond, or, you know, uh, it's, it's that sort of thinking as well, I guess, when you think about instructors. But I would imagine that the coaching down there is also, there's more accessibility to really high quality coaching as well. Sure. Yeah, that's, that's another factor. I want to finish with, uh, with you and just learning about what do you do when you're preparing for golf? And then what do you do when you go and play? I mean, everything that I've heard indicates that you still love to play, even though you're very busy. Um, so how do you think about your golf game? And how do you think about uh, yourself as a golfer? That is a great question. How do I, how do I prepare myself? So I think the biggest thing that people bring into golf, which is going to hurt them is expectations, right? So if you've watched a golf tournament uh, the weekend before and you go out and play the next week, you're like, Oh yeah, I saw that. I can do that. Right. And so we all bring these expectations and thinking that a PGA tour player, what we watch on TV, that they don't miss a fairway. They hit it inside 10 feet from 150 yards and every wedge shot better be within two feet. And even if you're a scratch handicap or whatever you, whatever level you might be, you have this idea in your mind that if I don't do that, I should probably get mad because I have hit a bad shot. Right. And I'm, and I shouldn't hit a bad shot. And I think a lot of it is changing those expectations. So that understanding that a tour player, uh, what is it? They make 50% of putts from eight feet. So most of us stand over eight footer, like I should, oh, this is easy. I shouldn't miss this. However, I'm going to make maybe 50% of these probably way less. Cause I'm not that good. So, you know, like you have to change your expectations drastically. And if you change your expectations, you lower them a little bit. You, you become a bit more understanding that I'm going to hit bad shots. I'm going to have bad rounds. If that happens today, it might happen. I have to be okay with that and just keep, keep moving. So having an understanding that every shot's not going to be perfect and that is hundred percent. Okay. Just to keep going to the next shot, I think is probably the biggest thing, the biggest mindset to bring into it is just having that understanding of um, every shot doesn't have to be perfect. I just have to keep going to the next one. You know, it's, it's such an interesting game and sport and challenging sport because like I played in a scramble charity event last week. And for those that don't know what a scramble is, everybody hits their ball off the tee and then we go to the best tee shot and everyone drops their ball and then we'll all hit from that spot. And so on the par fives, all of a sudden you might be going for it in two when if you're not a long driver, you would never be in that position or you can go for it in two because somebody else can lay up and it's worth the risk. And the amazing thing that happens is those are, let's say you're 200 yards out 
And in your mind, usually you're like, I can get it there, but I'm going to lay up and that's the safe play. But in a scramble, you're like, all right, I'm going to go for it. And it's an amazing, at least in my foursome, and I, I was the worst golfer. There were actually like three pretty good golfers with me. And everyone, I think, thought that they could get there in two, and no one did. And the percent of times that you actually could get there are so low. Um, but we think because we can once that that allows us to say that we can do that all the time. And so when you're talking about expectations, like I always think about expectations as process and like, what are my expectations? How do I want to show up today? And you mentioned like moving on, playing shot to shot. Um, you know, that can be an expectation. That's a really high quality expectation to have. Uh, so when I work with golfers, we create an expectation scorecard and they score themselves on, did they meet, did they own their own expectations? And I think it's a really important um, process for a golfer to go through. And uh, to your point, that doesn't mean that it's always going to be a five out of five. Some days they are going to get a three out of five, but then they can learn, all right, I did not do this or I did do this. They can regroup and the next day or the next round that they have, they have a path to move forward. And golf for me has been, uh, a sport that I did not play growing up. I really started playing because I started working with golfers and it's been an amazing experience a to have to try to learn the mechanics, which are very hard, especially if you're starting as an adult and then B to hold myself accountable to a lot of the stuff that I talk about. And just because you talk about it doesn't mean it's easy to, to walk in the shoes and I'm a human being just like everybody else. And so expectations is such a big word. Uh, we've hit on a lot of big words, potential expectations. Um, those are, those are really, really big words that are at the forefront for a lot of performers. Um, when you're performing, how do you think about yourself? Cause you now have some exposure uh, people that are in the golf community might know you. How do you set your mind when you go out there uh, and perform? And, and what expectations do you put on yourself, if any at all? Um, that's a that's a good question. Um, so kind of my approach to performance is, is kind of a mindfulness um, concept. Uh, Dr. Greg Carton is a performance, uh, performance guy that I work with, spend a bunch of time with. He's a, a, a great guy uh, and, and a friend now. And his kind of a approach has really resonated with me uh, of how to look at performance. And so, you know, I, I mean, a basic, a basic concept is that um, we all have similar thoughts, whether we're on the PGA Tour or a 20 handicap. So our, the way that we think is normal and it's okay. We don't have to stress out and resist thinking, I, what if I think I'm going to shank this? Oh my gosh, I should, you know, that's the end of the world. You can never think that. Well, reality is that eh, probably a lot of us are thinking that and it's okay. Cause it doesn't mean that you're going to hit a shank. I, I, how many times have you hit a good shot when you had a really negative thought and then a really positive thought? So you've proven to yourself that you can hit a good shot, whether you have a negative thought or a positive shot and you can do the same. You felt super good over shot and then you just hit, the worst shot possible it's happened right so having understanding that that we all think that way and, and that it's okay you don't have to resist that because when you resist those feelings when you resist those thoughts that causes tension and tension is really the ultimate performance killer we're looking to get in a somewhat a state of freedom which is difficult it's super hard right like it sounds it's easy to say very difficult to do um, but you know, I think the best thing is to let's lower the tension. Let's have an understanding that the thoughts that I'm having don't necessarily have power and let's 
just keep moving on and try to be as, as present and aware as possible. We're going to be an observer of our thoughts, not a, not a critic. Love it. I think that's a beautiful place for us to stop. I want to give you a platform to promote your podcast uh, and also let people know that if they're interested in podcasts, which I actually get a lot of people that reach out and say, hey, I'm thinking of starting a podcast. I'm sure you get a lot of people that say, I'm thinking about starting a podcast. If you're actually interested in starting a podcast, uh, you know, Cordy's a good guy to connect with. Uh, so first off, tell us um, where uh, people can find your podcast. Second, uh, if they're interested in creating their own, how do they reach out to you? And then third, if anybody is in uh, the Minnesota uh, region, I don't know how far you guys are uh, in the state, um, but if anybody needs floors, uh, it sounds like Cordy can help you out there as well. So I just want to give you a platform to promote whatever it is that, that you want to give a megaphone to. Yeah. If, if you're, if you're into golf, if you enjoy golf and check out the golf science lab, uh, it's a podcast on Apple and everywhere that you get your podcasts and, uh, and Alexa skill, you can go ask it questions. Um, so check that out. Enjoy some of that, that stuff there. That's probably the main hub, um, of, of what we do and how you can consume most of the content. Um, second thing would be just hit publish is, is the, the agency where we produce shows for businesses and organizations. If you ha if you work in an organization, if you have a business, if you work at a university and you're looking for a better, better way to communicate um, and build stronger relationships, we'd love to have a chat and see if it's a good fit. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that was fantastic. Thank you for having me on and, and chatting. Enjoyed the conversation and the, and the topics. It was fun. Thanks, Cordy. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. We all have similar thoughts whether we're on the PGA Tour or a 20 handicap. So our, the way that we think is normal and it's okay. We don't have to stress out and resist thinking, I, what if I think I'm gonna shank this? Oh my gosh, I should, you know, that's the end of the world. You can never think that. Well, reality is that eh, probably a lot of us are thinking that. And it's okay, because it doesn't mean that you're gonna hit a shank. I, I, how many times have you hit a good shot when you had a really negative thought and a really positive thought. So you've proven to yourself that you can hit a good shot whether you have a negative thought or a positive shot. And you can do the same. You felt super good over a shot and then you just hit the worst shot possible. It's happened, right? So having an understanding that, that we all think that way and, and that it's okay. You don't have to resist that because when you resist those feelings, when you resist those thoughts that causes tension, 